0: I'm not here because I was a teacher, I'm here because I wrote a book. 27 years as a teacher, nobody paid me a scrap of attention. Then you write a book about misery, and everybody pays attention, and they ask you for your opinion on things. I've been asked for my opinion on everything. I've been asked to write for various magazines, just because I wrote this book. I've been asked to write for Gourmet magazine, and I grew up on bread and tea. Well, I've been asked to write for Architectural Digest. Why? Why should I write for you? I said to Architectural Digest, well, we heard you moved recently. (laughs) You you could describe your move. I was worried a a, a few moments ago when uh, uh, Shelby Foote started talking about graduations and commencements because I've, I've even been advised to give commencement addresses. And I've been a student of commencement addresses ever since I landed in the USA at the age of 19. Uh, especially in May and June, the New York Times would report all these commencement addresses and they show you the principal speaker and they would show you the happy kids and their parents and caps and gowns and being thrown into the air and then you know everybody was going to lunch afterwards and everybody was happy that, that, uh, that David or Susan had graduated from college and so on. Now the parents could get on with their lives because they're rid of them, of these kids. And some of the speakers used to say, these commensurate speakers would always say, go forth. They're always saying, go forth. Well, what else were you going to do? <laughs> Sit in your seat all day? Or they'd say, now, now that you've graduated from college, We give you the world. What I'm saying now, oh no, my generation isn't finished with the world yet. (laughs) If you want it, you're going to have to fight for it. You're going to college and in four years you'll be grabbing at the world. Well, you'll have to grab very hard because, as I said, we're not finished with it. And in my case, I was supposed to follow the usual rituals of American life. I was supposed to be a teacher for, say, 25 years, what I hung on for 27 years, and actually it was more than, it was 30 years. And then uh, I, I did various things, some freelance writing for newspapers. But all the time this thing was nagging at me, this thing about writing my own story. After talking to kids, high school kids in New York about writing, uh, I would tell them about my experiences. They asked me about my experiences growing up in Ireland. And I would tell them, And they found it interesting. I didn't find my life interesting. I thought it was pretty bleak growing up in a slum in Limerick. But they were fascinated with the idea that perhaps somebody somewhere goes to bed hungry. You know, most Americans are on that strange thing called a diet. Oh, no, I'll have a Diet Coke. Oh, I'll have lettuce. I saw people eating lettuce with bits of cottage cheese in it, and I said, my God, is that what we've come to? (laughs) So so my my students in New York were fascinated with the idea that I might have grown up uh, uh, and gone to bed hungry from time to time, which we did. We'd want one more piece of bread. My mother said, no, we have to keep it for the morning. You have to have it with your tea in the morning. And sometimes we'd sneak into the kitchen, eat another piece of bread, but we'd be caught. My mother always knew when somebody had taken another slice of bread. So when I was, uh, when I was teaching, my students would ask me about my growing up in Ireland, what the religion, and the history of Ireland, you know, Ireland's 800-year struggle with the English, because we were, this was beaten into us. We weren't just brainwashed or educated. It was literally beaten into us how the Irish struggled with the English for 800 years. And uh, along with that, then, there was the presence in, in Ireland of the Catholic Church. It's very hard to explain hunger. It's very hard for, most, for you, most of you who have refrigerators, well-stocked. You go to the supermarkets and you come out groaning with stuff. It's loaded at the back of a station wagon and then you wonder if you have enough and you wonder what to do with all of this food. It's very hard to explain hunger. There are people in India dying of hunger. There are people in Rwanda and Ethiopia and the Sudan, Somalia, dying of hunger. And it's very hard to understand what it's like to be hungry. Never mind starving to death. You see the pictures on television. You see the babies with bloated bellies and the flies on their eyes. You see the mother staring into the camera. Well, I grew up not that badly off, but with, with the sense of hunger. So I was able to, when, I was there, when, I, when my students would ask me about my life, I would tell them about this. That was one, that was the physical aspect of poverty. Then there was the other aspect of growing up in Ireland, which was the church, the Catholic church, which is a brilliant organization. It tells you what the sins are. They've decided for 2,000 years the nature of sin, and there are hierarchies of sin. There's the sacrilege, which is the big boy. Then there's the mortal sin, which most of you are committing every day—the uh, seven deadly sins: pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth. And then there's the venial sin, the little one. Oh, uh, I had a flat. I missed my train. The little white lies—they call them. So. And uh, we learned the hierarchy of sin, and we learned there's also a hierarchy of reward and punishment. If you're good, and you die in a state of grace, you go to heaven. And heaven is, was defined as being in the presence of God. And God for us was that figure on the Sistine Chapel that's reaching out to Michelangelo at the finger. That's God. And he's up there sitting on a throne. And on his right-hand side is the Virgin Mary, And if you're good, you might sit on the left-hand side for two minutes when you go up to heaven. This is what we were promised. That's heaven. That's the reward. If you die in a state with a venial sin on your soul, you go to purgatory, where you spend a few million years being washed of this venial sin. If you die with a mortal sin on your soul, you go to hell, and that's forever. Burning, 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 burning forever and ever and ever. And we used to say that to our priests and our priests, forever, forever. You mean, you mean if I steal sixpence from my mother's purse, I go to hell forever? Yep, forever. And the funny thing about it was, if you die, if you commit one mortal sin and die, you go to hell. Well, you say, well, I've committed one mortal sin and got to hell anyway, so I might as well commit all of them. The punishment, the punishment was the same. Because if, if you commit a sacrilege, that's automatic. Down you go, if you're dying to say, There was another one that, used, that really confused me and, and maybe it caused me a lot of trouble with the church. If a baby is born and dies shortly after being born and dies unbaptized, that baby goes to a place called limbo limbo was explained as a kind of a peaceful place for unbaptized babies millions of unbaptized babies and my image of it with their fluttering on little wings forever and ever and ever and then the Vatican Council comes along in the 1960s and abolishes limbo (laughs) so what we wanted to know were where are the little babies were they upgraded to heaven with their little frequent flyer, Baby Miles? Right. You can, see, you can see that I grew up in a state of theological confusion. And that's been the story of my life. I don't, as a teacher, all those years in, in New York City high school, And I went from some very rough high schools, vocational high schools, where the kids were in auto mechanics and sheet metal and and machine shop and so on. And they didn't want to listen to me in an English class talking about dangling participles or or revolting gerunds or something like that. They, (laughs) They didn't want to hear it. So I had to capture their attention. And the one, and I learned, I learned from being in those classes in New York. And you know what you are. You know what you are. You know what adolescents are are like. You know you're sticks of dynamite. You know you're explosive. You know you're always in a state of rebellion. You're always blowing your top, and you're always slamming the door in your room. You know how you are. And we had to put up with you. (laughs) I had to put up with 170 of you every day, and try to deal with this mass of exploding hormones every day and you're always falling in love especially in the springtime especially when you were juniors there was always a day of falling in love with the Suze and you had to try to get their attention and you're dealing with nature with sex and I didn't realize all of this when I became a teacher I didn't know anything but fear when I became a teacher which I brought from Ireland with me as a result of my lack of education as a result of the kind of religious conditioning that I'd gone through. So when I I became a teacher, I spent 27 years, I retired. I'd been told by the kids, because of the things I told them about growing up in Ireland, I'd been told by them that I should write a book. And I do what I'm told. And I wrote a book. And it became the bestseller. And that's why I'm here, because I got prizes for writing this book. All the years that that I taught, I was fairly obscure. I was obscure, like all the teachers that you've had all these years, the 12 years you've been in school, and the four more years that you'll be in college. They're they're fairly obscure. Most of them won't be up here. And I'm certainly glad that I wrote this book and was given a voice so that I could talk to the likes of you. Thank you.